Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the, and there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. The Irish passed the test at North Carolina on Friday and are now a win away from clinching a spot in the ACC championship. They can do that this Saturday against a bad Syracuse team. Saturday will also be the last time this season we get to hear the in-game analysis of NBC's Tony Dungy. So we invited the Pro Football Hall of Famer onto the podcast to pick his brain about the Irish. Tony, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you, guys. It's good to be with you. And I I can tell you, my first year of covering Irish football has been great. I didn't know a lot about college football before I started. Didn't know much about Notre Dame football other than what you see from afar. And I have really, really not only had fun, but I've been impressed with this Irish football team. Tony, what has been the biggest surprise uh, from that you've seen from the Irish this season? I think it's really been the development of their offense. I knew their defense was going to be good. They, they had some tremendous players coming back. Uh, but offensively, how was the receiving core going to gel, losing you know guys like Chase Claypool and, and Kyle Komet, who are making plays in the – Cole Komet, making plays in the NFL. You know, how were they going to, to mesh? And then the running back situation. Kyron Williams, I knew they had high hopes for him. But he hadn't really generated that in-game in situation. Well, the receivers have come on. Ian Books continued to improve. That offensive line we knew was going to be dominant, but the runners have taken advantage of it. And they've morphed into not just a tough physical group, but, but a group that can put points on the board. Tony, just following that up about the offense, you know, again, you weren't the analyst when – Brian made the hire of Tommy Reese, but I'm wondering from a distance, did you have an opinion about a 27-year-old taking that job? And then what's kind of your impressions as you've gotten to know Tommy through the season? Well, when we first talked to him, he said, you know what? I am not one of these guys who's going to do what everybody else does. Uh, Everybody's running spread offense and zone reads and those kind of things. The strength of our team is our offensive line. We're going to feature them. I want to be tough and hard-nosed. And then I know what Ian Book can do. And so after having that conversation with him, I said, man, this is a a good, solid, young coach. 
and it kind of reminded me of my – I told Tom, it reminded me of my situation. I played for Chuck Knoll in Pittsburgh as a defensive back. I was 25 years old when he hired me as a coach and 28 when he promoted me to defensive coordinator. It's unheard of, but Coach Knoll knew me and he trusted me. And I think Tommy has the same situation there with Brian Kelly. Coach Kelly knows Tommy. He trusts him. And he's turned turned it over to him and let him put his personality on this team. And it's been great to watch. Tony, I think the, the ceiling of this Notre Dame offense is, is tied pretty closely to Ian Book and his development as a quarterback. How good of a quarterback do you think Ian is? What have you seen from his development? And I guess maybe looking forward even, what kind of a pro potential do you think Ian has? Well, I, I think Ian Book can be a very good pro. Uh, I was impressed with him from day one. But he, he has a few things going for him that the really great ones do. Number one, he's accurate with the football. And he doesn't uh, – he's not sloppy with it. He's very conscious of not turning the ball over. So those are two big qualities right away. And then the third thing is his mobility. And getting away from people, extending plays, that's what the NFL has become all about. These great quarterbacks aren't just sitting back in the pocket, six foot five stand there seven yards deep and throw rockets to everyone. So being accurate with the ball, being able to throw on the move, uh, understanding the game and having that uh, ability to extend plays, that's what everyone's looking for. Ian Book can do all those things. It may not be flashy and it may not be Trevor Lawrence, but he's good. I'm I'm curious from a, a defensive standpoint from you as a coach, how would you try to defend Ian Book? Well, he, he gives you some problems because you, you have to – rush him and you have to be aware that he can scramble and move around so how do you stop him from running and extending plays do you blitz do you spy him we've seen different defensive coordinators try to utilize different ways but the one thing you do know if you don't have a good rush plan and he's able to move around he will kill you so uh, he puts a lot of pressure on defenses and and you couple that with the strong running game that they have uh, Mm -hmm. it's it's a handful it's not easy to defend I've got a couple for you here. The The first one is following up on kind of what Tyler was asking you about book. I'm curious in your own career, if the NFL was as open-minded about the different ways that quarterbacks could play and look and everything back when you were playing, do you think you could have, you should have had a chance to at least try to be a quarterback? Would you have liked that chance? I would have loved that opportunity. And as you mentioned, it it was a different game back then. But um, in my era, in the late 70s, uh, and and you said you saw me play, so you know this. There were quarterbacks. What these guys are doing now, Russell Wilson and Patrick Mahomes, there were guys who were doing that. Chuck Ely was a little bit ahead of me at University of Toledo, never lost a game in college, Uh, did everything, had to go to Canada. Um, Warren Moon, I played against Warren Moon, and he did not get drafted, if you could believe it or not. He had to go to Canada and win five Grey Cups because they thought, well, he moves around a little too much and doesn't stand in the pocket. The things that everybody's looking for now. So, yeah, I think uh, I would have enjoyed playing in this era, and I think I probably would have played quarterback had had I been uh, 30 years younger. Okay. My other part of the question is, as you're analyzing a game with you having done so much NFL stuff, do you kind of, when you're watching somebody like Adi Ogundeji or even Kyle Hamilton, who's not draft eligible, do you sometimes look through them 
through the lens as an NFL future NFL player, or are you trying to evaluate them as college guys? Well, I try to do my job and talk about them as college guys, but you're right. I, I told Mike Tirico that just the other day. I said, Mike, I'm not going back to the NFL as a coach, but if I did, there's about six of these guys I would <laughs> definitely take with me. Jeremiah Usu-Koromoa, I think he is – that's what everybody's looking for as a nickel linebacker now, a guy who can cover in open space, cover backs down the field. He can blitz. He can make open field tackles. He's physical. Yeah, that's what you want. Everybody wants a big safety like Kyle Hamilton in the middle of the field who's got great range, who can tackle. And, and I, I think about what these guys are going to do in the NFL. And then you look at that offensive line and, and think, gosh, yeah, th these are going to be high draft choices as well. Michael Mayer, um, you know, they call talking about baby Gronk. Well, what is he going to be like in three years? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I, I do look at these guys and try to visualize where they might be and, and how they're going to be in three or four years. Tony, do you, do you have former colleagues that reach out to you trying to get, get some insight in the Irish because they know you? you <laughs> I, I have gotten that just, just recently, and I'm sure I'll get it more as we come into March and April and the draft is, is uh, <laughs> getting ready to come around. What did you see in these guys? What are they like? And I'll tell you what, great young men, too. When we talk to them, and it's been all Zoom this year, but you talk to why did you come to Notre Dame? What, what are you getting out of this? What are you looking for? What's this game? And they never talk about themselves. They talk about the group and what we're going to do and how, how we're attacking things. Uh, it's been great to get to know them. So, yeah, I'm sure I'll get those calls as the draft approaches. Um, Tony, the Notre Dame, everybody in college football has had to deal with this COVID issue. Um, and Notre Dame had their hiccup early, and, and some of these teams are having it later. I'm wondering from just a broadcaster standpoint and as a personal standpoint for you, has this been as challenging for you getting around and getting to all these things as it has for the players and coaches? No, it, it really has. Uh, doing your job where we used to come in and watch practice and then sit down with the players and talk to them and get, get the inside scoop. Now we're having to watch practice tape and uh, talk to the players via Zoom. So you can't get every question in that you want. And then getting to the games, you know, getting to Notre Dame. How, how am I going to get there? Am I going to go through the Chicago airport? Uh, am I going to fly to Indianapolis? What's going to be less crowded? Um, you know, the, all of those things that you never would have thought about before. And uh, then even when we go and, and rehearse, we've got less of a staff in the, in the booth now. And we have to stay six feet apart. I, I'd like to ask Mike Tirico a question, you know, when we're off air and, and we have to kind of point to each other and those kind of things. It, it's, it's been crazy. It, it hasn't been easy, but uh, definitely easier on us than it is the players and coaches for sure. Tony, you, you talked about Tommy Reese. I want to go to the opposite side of the ball and Clark Lee as a defensive coordinator. What have you, been your impressions of him and what he's been able to do with this defense? I'm going to say this on our broadcast on Saturday. Any athletic director who's listening to, or listening to the broadcast, if you have a coaching vacancy and you're looking for someone to hire, I would hire Clark Lee so fast. I think he is very smart. He understands the game. He's got a great relationship with his players. He coaches uh, from a, a, a love relationship rather than a, hey, I'm going to punish you if you don't do it right. Uh, those guys respect him, and he makes adjustments. Uh, he, he's done a tremendous job with that defense. They hustle. If you watch the defense play, you know what kind of coach they have. They hustle. 
They never give up. They don't beat themselves. Uh, I think he's going to be a tremendous head coach someday. Tony, I don't know how much dealings you had with Brian Kelly before you were in this particular role, but I'm wondering if he was what you thought he was, who you thought he was once you got to know him and work with him all the time. He's a little more mellow than I, I pictured him. I, I'd seen him on the sidelines, and that was my that was my only impression. I didn't really know Brian talked to him a couple times, but I'd see him just kind of turn bright red, <laughs> be ready to blow up on the sideline. And I said, oh, this guy is really intense. But talking to him, talking to the players, how they respond to him, uh, I, I really do think Notre Dame has a heck of a coach there. Uh, on Saturday, as I mentioned, Notre Dame be playing Syracuse. Do you have any plans to console Mike Tirico if Syracuse gets blown out? <laughs> We've already started. Mike has already <laughs> said, hey, oh, my orange, they, they aren't going to be much of a match. They're the perfect uh, team to play up there on senior day because all the seniors will get, get to play early. <laughs> so, yeah, Mike's in the tank a little bit. Uh, we've got to revive him and keep his energy level going on Saturday. <laughs> Tony, uh, if you were on the college football playoff selection committee this year, would you would you consider Clemson and Notre Dame both as playoff teams, regardless of what happens in that ACC championship? I, I think you have to. And I know people are going to say, okay, well, they play twice. And I think they are going to play twice. And do we really want to see a third time around? But to me, your job is to pick the four best teams. And I don't care if we've seen them play before or not. And I, I think you have to. Clemson is very, very good. Uh, Notre Dame is excellent. I don't see any of these other teams better than them, no matter what the records turn out. So uh, I think they both should be there. And it would be great to see them opposite each other in the semifinals so that, you know, they would have to play someone else and – beat someone else to play again that third time. But I think they're definitely both two of the best four teams in the country. I think for Notre Dame fans, now that the North Carolina game is over, that was one that they were nervous about. That yes. now, now they're all focused on the Notre Dame-Clemson rematch. How do you think that will go, and what do you think could be different about them? Obviously, besides Trevor Lawrence being able to play, but uh, what, what do you think could be different from both teams and how the two teams may try to uh, um, adjust from the, the first matchup? Yeah, honestly, I, I don't think Trevor Lawrence will make that much difference. Uh, DJ Uyangale played well. They had a good plan. What Clemson didn't have that first time around, three or four guys in that front seven who were out, they, they will make a difference. And defensively, they'll be a little bit better. Uh, Notre Dame, big and physical. Clemson had trouble with that, that offensive line. Clemson got some big plays in the passing game. Coach Lee is going to have to scheme that up and say, how, how can we, you know, it's not stopping Travis Etienne. How do you stop these pass receivers? I think Notre Dame will have a little bit different approach on defense in the second game. Clemson, maybe those defenders being healthy will help them hold up against that offensive line. It's going to be a great game. And, and I think you could see another overtime game. I really do. Tony, you mentioned that you had watched some practice tapes and so forth in your prep. You know, we haven't seen a lot of Braden Lindsay this year. I don't know if you've seen more of him when you look at those practice tapes. But at his best, do you think he can make this team even better? Do you think that there's another level for their passing game if he gets involved? 
Yeah, that element of speed that he brings. And, and in a game like a Clemson game or if you play in Alabama where you're going to need that, that one big play. Um, you know, Notre Dame has a lot of good receivers. The guys have done a good job filling in, but he has that home run threat. And that is something that we haven't seen. So I think he could add that in a national championship game atmosphere. Tony, how many hours of football do you think you watch in a week combined with your NFL? And, and now, now, that, now that I'm on this Notre Dame uh, broadcast, I, it's doubled for sure. So I'm probably from 15, 18 hours a week to now maybe 30 to 40. Yeah, it's like a full-time job. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you enjoy about that? It, does, it, is it, does it scratch some sort of itch that maybe you missed from coaching? I, I enjoy seeing new players and getting to, to know players. Uh, there aren't a lot of new schemes, although the college game is different. Seeing uh, different types of offenses every week has been fun. But really kind of looking at players. And, and I can remember Mike Tirico and Chris Sims, you know, coming back last year saying, oh, wait till you see Chase Claypool. Wait till you see this guy. Uh, they really have some good players there. And uh, – even what we did the Green Bay Bears game and Mike Tirico's giving me notes of a, of a production meeting he had with Roquan Smith when Notre Dame played Georgia. And so that's the thing that is really kind of neat, getting to see these guys when they're young and seeing and following how they develop. <laughs> for, for us, you know, we don't – well, this year we've seen a lot more of the TV games because some – only one of us from the staff can go to a game. Right, right. So we're covering from home. So we get to see you. We get to see Mike. And I had seen Mike do other things, but he comes off as, I think, the best that I can think of in the business right now. I'm wondering your impressions. I can't tell you how unbelievable he is. He's, he's helped me tremendously as I'm still a rookie in the broadcasting business. But the unbelievable thing about him is – he could do Syracuse basketball game on Wednesday, do a Thursday night NFL game, Saturday Notre Dame game, Sunday back in the studio. He remembers all the players, knows the names, knows the numbers, knows, and just hits it without missing a beat. Where for me, I'm practicing all week on names and pronunciations and numbers and who's the, and then you throw in college football where an offensive player and a defensive player have the same number <laughs> it's yeah. it's unbelievable but he his mind is so good he's so sharp uh he's just the best he is the best as eric alluded to we've been watching more from home i think anyone that's watched another name game knows how much you like tommy tremble what is it about <laughs> tommy tremble that you appreciate so much well to me he is that perfect guy who has great receiving skills, but he doesn't care if he catches one pass or 10 passes. He likes the rest of the game. He likes blocking for his teammates. He likes just being involved in everything. And uh, that type of attitude is infectious. So that guy who can get deep, catch deep balls, catch that third and sixth ball over the middle, block a defensive end, pass protect if he needs to, be a lead blocker on the goal line, and enjoy all of it. Uh, that, that to me is, is tremendous. And that first game we're up there, I got a chance to meet his parents. We were just walking before the game and to meet his family and to see just how sweet they, they were. Um, it, it just tells you everything you need to know about a guy. He's, he's brought up well. He's a team player. 
He loves the game, and he plays hard every single play. Tony, last one from me. You know, I think a lot of Notre Dame fans are concerned if and when Notre Dame gets in the playoff, how their corners will hold up. And I'm wondering if you've seen progress from McLeod, Bracey, and Lewis, and just kind of your impressions of how they'd hold up in another big game. They're really good players, and they will hold up and do well. Coach Lee's system puts a lot of pressure on them. There's no question about it. But uh, they have built and, – and playing Clemson, if they have to play Clemson twice, that will be good preparation. Uh, if you play Alabama, you're going to be playing against some elite guys. Uh, but I think they're ready, and mentally they, they're ready for the, the test. Bracey and McLeod are confident guys, and that's what you need in those big games, confidence. All right, Tony, that's all we got for you. We really appreciate you taking time to join us today and and sharing your insight. All right. Thank you, guys. Looking forward to Saturday and looking forward to the rest of the season. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but first, a word from Coors Light. Hey, Fighting Irish fans. The best way to unwind and chill out during these busy go, go, go days is to reach for the one beer that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. It's important to relax these days, but crack open a mountain cold Coors Light and chill out. Now that we're getting towards the critical parts of the college football season, it's important to make sure your refrigerator is stocked with cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged Coors Light. In fact, the mountains on the can will turn blue when chilled to perfection. So when you want to hit the reset button, reach for the beer that's made to chill, Coors Light. You can even have Coors Light delivered by going to get.coorslight.com. As the games get hotter and hotter, reach for the one beer that's made to chill, Coors Light. Celebrate responsibly, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. All right, now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's make some prop bets for Notre Dame Syracuse. First one I have for us, Eric, is over under five and a half catches for Notre Dame's tight ends. Well, I just did a big story on tight ends this (laughs) week. So I'm going to look really silly if I say under, and I'm going to look really silly because I'm going to say under. (laughs) And the reason I say that is I think uh, Brian Kelly is going to want to take the the bubble wrap off of Braden Lindsay this week and get a feel for what he can do uh, before these big games coming up. And I think he's going to want to take a look at some other people too. And so I think the tight ends might suffer a little bit in that equation. I don't think they're going to have, you know, only two catches and, and they're going to block like crazy, but I, I'm going to go under. I'm going to go under as well. I thought I could, could maybe get you to go over knowing that you just wrote about the tight ends. I, I, to me, I think the tight ends tend to have more production when the defense they're playing against is good and they need those guys to be productive, and, I, and they're just they're, – they don't need them against Syracuse to, to, to be those kinds of guys. And especially, like, on a third down, throw the ball to Michael Mayer and let him do the rest. Uh, I don't know that Notre Dame's going to face a ton of those situations against Syracuse, so I think they, there's a chance that they will go under, so that's where I'm, I'm siding. Next one, over under one-and-a-half interceptions for Notre Dame's defense. This was a really difficult one because Notre Dame hasn't gotten a lot of interceptions this year and Syracuse turns the ball over like crazy. Um, I ended up saying over because I think Notre Dame's pressure will cause 
some. I, I'm not super confident in this pick, but I just <laughs> went over. Yeah, I think over makes more sense, but I couldn't talk myself into doing it just because of the way Notre Dame hasn't been able to consistently intercept passes this season. So even against a bad Syracuse offense, I'll, I'll side with, with under. and Maybe they'll get one, but won't be able to get two interceptions. Uh, next one is over under 215 yards for Syracuse's offense. Well, I think they only average about 250, 250. Right. Um, you know, there's been eight games in the Brian Kelly era that teams have gotten less than 215 yards in total offense. And one of them happened this year, and that was Pitt. I think Syracuse is a great candidate to be number nine. I, I just don't think that they're very good. So, and I don't think Notre Dame's going to, to sleepwalk through this game either. So I say, yes, that's going to happen under 215. Yeah, I'm going under as well. Uh, North Carolina, Pittsburgh, and Louisville have all held Syracuse to under 215 yards, so I think uh, Notre Dame will be the fourth to do so. So I'm going under, um, even though uh, two, 215 yards is so few yards. It's, it's kind of crazy that Syracuse has already done that three times this season, but um, that that's just the state of their offense right now. Next one is over under 110 rushing yards for Kyron Williams. I I think if Sebo Flemister is ready to go 100%, they're going to use a lot of Sebo in this game and and get Kyron out of there. But I think Kyron's going to have a long run that's going to put him over that 110. So I'm going to say over. Yeah, I'm going over as well. Syracuse is allowing uh, 200 yards per game rushing, and I think uh, – Kyron, I don't, I don't know that he's going to have a huge workload because I don't know that they're going to need him to, but I think he'll rip off a couple longer runs and um, get up to that 110 mark pretty quickly. Next one, over under two and a half third down conversions for Syracuse. Well, you got one of the best third down defenses going against one of the worst third down offenses, so they'll probably get 10. Uh, <laughs> but, but I'm going to go under. I'm going to play the odds that – that the resistible force <laughs> will meet the immovable object. Yeah, well, we got a lot of agreement this week. I'm going under as well. UNC only had two third down conversions. So uh, that would mean Syracuse. I mean, it would be kind of wild to think that Syracuse would have more third down conversions against Notre Dame than the North Carolina's offense did. But I mean, just getting three isn't that many. <laughs> but uh Opponents against Notre Dame are averaging a little bit more than three, so that's not out of the realm for what Notre Dame is doing on a week-to-week basis. Um, so I think they will hold them under two and a half. Lastly, a final score prediction. What's your prediction for Notre Dame-Syracuse? I think it's possible to shut them out. Um, I don't think it's going to happen in this game because I think Syracuse is probably going to get a, a short field and kick a field goal. They've got good kickers and punters and so forth. Um and then I think maybe late in the game against the second or third team defense, they'll get another field goal. So I'm going 45 to six Notre Dame. Wow. We have almost identical scores. I went 45 to seven thinking that Syracuse could get a touchdown instead of having to settle for two field goals. It, this is a team that probably deserves to be predicted for a shutout. Um, but it, it feels really disrespectful to, to, to predict a shutout against a team, even if they're as bad as Syracuse offense is. So, I'll tell you, they surprised me putting up some points against NC State last week. Not that NC State is a defensive 
juggernaut, but that did surprise right. me a little bit. Yeah, they they have had some success at times, but they're just wildly inconsistent. And, and uh, I think Notre Dame's defense is is really going to flex its muscle, even after having to um, play against a good defense the week before. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. you guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. Um, a quick tip, because this happens more frequently recently, if you send me the question via direct message, there's a, like a 90% chance that I, I'll forget it because I, I don't tend to look there. I, I sort of look for the replies to the tweets that I have, that, that where I'm asking questions. So if you can try to remember to do it there rather than sending us a direct message, that would be greatly appreciated. And don't try to send it telepathically or neither of us will get it. Send it to, to Eric's personal facts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first question we have from Michael Kenny at Domer747 is, it seems in today's college football, having a great defensive coach is like gold, let alone one who is also younger and fits the culture of your program. Assuming Brian Kelly isn't planning to be the next or being the Notre Dame coach beyond five years, why not make or name Clark Lee, your head coach in waiting? Um, because there's just so many things that are wrong with that concept, and I will list them. I, I've never been a fan of it. Uh, I went back and researched the ones, even the ones where it worked out, like Jimbo Fisher taking over at Florida State. There were problems – at the end of the Bobby Bowden era, there were people who wanted to push Bobby out the door before he was ready. There are players that felt like, who am I supposed to listen to? The guy that's going to be my coach or the guy that is my coach. Um, does Clark Re Lee really want to wait that long? What if Brian Kelly says, you know what? I want to coach longer than five years. Um, what if Jack Swarbrick isn't the AD uh, more than a couple years I got all kinds of things. Um, what if there's a great opportunity for Clark Lee? Let's say the Stanford job opens up or something better than that opens up between the time that Brian says he's thinking about retiring and, and now. I think Clark Lee is ready for, for a, really good, uh, a really good opportunity. I just there's, – there's nothing I like about this. And, and – and, let's take Clark out of it. Let's take a situation like John Tenuta. John Tenuta at one point was the defensive coordinator in college football before he came to Notre Dame. <laughs> but, but college football changed and John Tenuta wasn't able to adapt his system to playing in space. And it made him kind of obsolete. So would you have wanted to lock into a guy like that? I just think, I, I don't see what is any of the upside to it. It's not like it's the queen of England and you're trying to, you know, get the heir to the throne lined up. Yeah. It seems I'm not, it's interesting to me that this is, I mean, I, I understand the love for Clark Lee. I think, I mean, we heard Tony Dungy earlier in the podcast, give him praise. And um, I think we agree with that. Clark Lee could be a really good head coach in the right fit and could be a good head coach in Notre Dame down somewhere down the line. But I just think, the ones that seem to work, and I, I don't know, I, I'm not sure like what examples people see as like, okay, it worked there. 
I mean, Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day are were guys that were, pr were promoted from within, but I don't know that they were necessarily coaches in waiting. And those get the coaches that were ahead of them left. And then um, the athletic director at the time decided that, Hey, these guys are worth um, um, hiring. And I, I imagine they probably had the backing of the coaches they were replacing, but um, I think, it, I think it's, it's sort of different. I, the only way that I could see a head coach in waiting making sense is if like Brian Kelly said, this is my last season. Like he going into next year, he yeah. said, this is my last season no matter what. And you sort of have a plan that, okay, then after this season, Clark Lee is taking over. But uh, uh, like coaching waiting at a, a sort of a, a, a not specific date, I, I just, there's too much, too many things that have to be sacrificed for that to even make sense or work. Um, I, I just don't know that it, it makes, it's, it's worth the hassle. Um, when when Mac Brown did that at Texas, he had eight years left on his contract. <laughs> and then when things started going sideways, then people kind of blamed the Will Muschamp coach and waiting concept. I just I just don't think it, it. Here's the positive thing: if if Clark Lee does go get another job somewhere else, the thing is, if he goes, I mean, people are going to want him. And if he goes and gets a head coaching job and does well there, when Brian Kelly's ready to retire, Clark Lee will be one of your top candidates and a guy that would make a lot of sense. Plus, now he would have head coaching experience, right. which would make him even better. Yeah, I mean, it, in my opinion, the biggest reason you don't do it is because I think the next Notre Dame coach needs to have head coaching experience. So, um, and I, I don't know. That, that that will change. I mean, certainly Clark Lee has is impressive enough to do something like that, but it's it's a whole different deal being the defensive coordinator at Notre Dame and being the head coach at Notre Dame. Um, next question is from at Irish Fan One Zero Two. Who will be a head coach first, Clark Lee or Mike Elko? And is there any chance of Clark Lee working in the pros? Well, you know, a few years ago I would have said Mike Elko, and today I would say Clark Lee. Um, Mike Elko's done a good job down at Texas A&M. I mean, Notre Dame is fourth in rush defense, and Texas A&M is fifth, and Notre Dame is, I think, 10th in total defense, and A&M is 20th. So, I mean, he's doing a good job. He's recruiting well down there. It's just they things haven't fallen all the way together for A&M, and it seems like their offense is what's holding them back this year. Right. But I think Lee – projects more as a head coach than Mike Elko does. Um, and so that, that would be my pick of those two. Um, and, and Elko was interested in the Boston college job and it was Lee who got farther in that process. So I thought it was interesting that that was a job they were competing against each other. Would Clark Lee work in the pros? I don't think it's his thing. I don't think that's a goal of his. If there was a particular coach that he wanted to work with in the NFL, and he thought maybe it was better for his young family. But it seems like those guys in the NFL put in, I mean, from what Charlie Weiss told me, he put in a lot more hours as an NFL assistant than he did as Notre Dame's head coach. And he put a lot of hours into Notre Dame's head coach. But, I mean, he was a workaholic when he was an NFL assistant. So I, I don't think that's likely. Yeah, I think Clark Lee really values the the whole ideal behind being a college football coach and working with, with young men and, and – um, sort of molding them. So I think that he would, and, and the academic side, I think he, he's, he, he um, appreciates all of that. So that for that reason, I think it would be hard to see him in the NFL. I mean, but maybe, I mean, if he goes on to be a head coach in the in college football and is really successful, maybe he wants to challenge himself to be 
in the NFL at some point. I mean, that's a long, t- that would be a long time down the road in my opinion. Um, the, the head coach first between him or Elko is tough to me because to me, I, 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 I agree with you that I think Clark Lee seems like a better fit as a head coach than Mike Elko does. But I also think Clark Lee is a certain type of fit. And I think he will be picky about where he wants to go. And I'm not sure if Mike Elko is maybe itching to be a head coach sooner than, than Clark Lee and maybe would be a little bit more impatient. I mean, we've seen, I mean, they have a checkbook. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. A&M is willing to pay him a lot. So wherever he's going, he's going to have to pay him a lot too. Um, but maybe, maybe someone can lure him away. So I'll side with Mike Elko. Um, but I, I, I mean, I could see either of them getting hired this off season. I don't, I, it w- we might not have to wait very long to, for, to find out the answer to this question. That's why I think it's so kind of hard to, to side with which one. Uh, next question is from Josh Melton at Domer Colts fan. Obviously a magnificent defensive performance, a little underwhelming offensively against a mediocre defense. Did UNC provide a blueprint for teams to defend Ian Book, multiple blitzes and confusing looks up front, or was this a one-off and better than it looked? Well, I've been trying to think of how I can answer this question diplomatically. I just don't think we were watching the same game. I thought North Carolina did a great job of taking advantage early in the game of trying to trick, not trick, but confuse Zeke Carell and Josh Love. I think they attacked Notre Dame where Notre Dame seemed the most vulnerable. And as those two settled into the game, I thought they got better. I thought Book played really well. I, you know, so I I don't know what to say here because uh, I, I just saw the game differently. I thought he made so many big plays, so many clutch plays, was able, I, I mean, like the touchdown to um, Kyron Williams was outstanding um, awareness and so forth. I, I just, I'm sorry, I'll let you answer it, Tyler, because I'd, I, I saw a different game. I was impressed with Book. Yeah, I mean, if UNC had Ian Book 100% figured out, they probably wouldn't have given up 14 points in the first quarter. Um, obviously, they made adjustments, and, and the and Notre Dame's office, offense wasn't playing that efficiently throughout the whole game. Um, but they were able to move the ball, um, and uh, obviously they missed a field goal, so that lowered that the, they could have scored a touchdown on that drive. Um, so – I, I don't totally buy it. I, I, to me, I, Ian Book has, has started 32 games now. Um, the blueprint on him is is already in paperback. Um, I think everyone knows what Ian Book can do, can't do. It's Football can be a complicated game, but everyone, I think the recipe for defending Ian Book is is kind of pretty – and blueprint is pretty similar to, to defending any good quarterback. you got to try to confuse them smother their receivers, pressure them, give them fewer opportunities to scramble, uh, specifically for book because he can do that. So I don't, I don't think, I don't think people don't know how to defend Ian book. It's a matter of executing it and it's not easy to do. Um, and he, it's not just defending Ian book. It's the entire offense with the balance that Notre Dame has so far. So um, I, I'm not sure that, and I don't know that anyone is going to watch the UNC games like, oh, I didn't realize that about that's how you defend Ian Book. I don't know that anyone learned a lot uh, that wasn't already sort of established about defending Ian Book. Well, I mean, even with North Carolina's defense, you know, Notre Dame averaged 6.9 yards per play, which is above their average, 478 yards, which is above their average. 
they're trying to play complementary football. They're trying to keep North Carolina's offense off the field, and they held them to 57 plays, which is a stunning amount of plays. The average in college football is 70. And so, and, and I think North Carolina was averaging around 73. So you, you wanted to downshift at times in that game in terms of your tempo and what you were, you know, put some long ball hogging drives together. And maybe that's not conducive to Ian Book looking like Joe Montana. All right. Next question we have is from Jack Quinn at JQ6008. Will Ian Book have a longer NFL career than Brady Quinn or Jimmy Clausen? Um, you know, so much of getting, you know, once you get to the NFL is being in a good place. And I think certainly Brady Quinn and Deshaun Kaiser didn't land in good places at the time. Cleveland was not a great place to be either for either one of those. And I know he didn't ask about Deshaun Clausen. You know, they Carolina drafted Cam Newton shortly after Jimmy got there. Um, so he didn't have a lot of time to establish himself. I, I don't know. I mean, I think there I think he could be a backup right. um somewhere. And if he gets in the right situation, he's the perfect backup because he would help the starter, he would be a team guy. There would be so many positives about him. But, again, if he's not in the right situation, then it could be over pretty quickly for him. Yeah, I it, it, I think there's a lot of caveats to this question, like do practice squads count? Does he actually have to play? I, I think there are, a lot of, there are a lot of career backups that have had longer careers than Brady Quinn and Jimmy Clausen. Um, and that's partially because – Brady Quinn and Jimmy Clausen had high expectations. They were thrown out there and they, they, they failed and they weren't going to get many chances after that. So I don't think when Ian book um, goes into the NFL that he will get drafted highly. Um, and he's not going to be a guy that is plugged into pl- and expected to play right away. So he can, he can linger a bit longer in the NFL. I mean, Tyler Bray is the third string quarterback for the bears and he's been in the NFL f- since 2013 and he, just completed his first pass of his career this past season. So in, in, in the NFL is strange with backup quarterbacks that way, where if you um, make a connection with coaches and, and you ha- have a reputation of being a, a, a solid backup and a guy that p- people can rely on, you can, you can hang around in the NFL for a while. And I can see Ian book doing that. So I think there's a potential that he could have a longer NFL career than Brady Quinn or Jimmy Clausen, though my guess would be he would probably start fewer games than those guys did in their career. Next question is from Samuel Ramirez at Samuel27RC. What happened to Shane Simon after the Clemson game? Will Maris Leofile take over the linebacker role, or will Jack Kaiser? Um, I think, you know, Brian Kelly and Clark Lee have been just trying to play to the strengths and the depth of that position. And Brian, after the North Carolina game and the post game mentioned that Maris brought something to that game that they needed in terms of his length, and he was able to execute that really well. I think Shane played very well in the Clemson game, as you mentioned. Jack Kaiser had his moment. I think they have three really good options there, and I think Notre Dame is going to not 
they're not trying to define who the best of those three are. I think they're going to try to use them situationally and whoever can, um, can be the best matchup, you know, is going to get the playing time in a particular game. I think Brian Kelly even addressed this a little bit uh, on Monday, didn't he, Tyler? Yeah, he's been pretty consistent throughout the season that he doesn't think that necessarily anyone's taking over the role. That it's going to continue to be a combination of guys playing and be a rotation. And who ends up playing the most may depend on the matchup. They've all had their moments this season, um, and that's not a coincidence. They're all good players. I don't know that one is like a transcendent great player right now that can sort of take all the playing time away. And, and Brian Kelly talks about the previous years, the Asmar Bilal, there wasn't really another option behind Asmar Bilal, so he was he was the guy. And Drew Tranquil, you didn't want to take Drew Tranquil off the field the year before that, so that's why he um, had solidified his spot at the Buckeye position. They're just it's a different it's a different situation this year. They have three guys that they like and they have that can bring different things to the game. Um, I think I we we will continue to see all of that. We. We've seen the least lately of Jack Kaiser of that trio, but I don't. I wouldn't rule out that the, the possibility of him continuing to to show up and play more. So I think I, I don't think there's going to be any sort of predictable um, uh, uh, lineup that we're going to see on a, a consistent basis. It could be Shane continuing to start, um, and then and then we'll see how it goes from there. Next question is from the Jackal at the underscore Jack Attack. It looks like teams are attacking Tariq Bracey more often. How does Notre Dame fix that against the potential playoff matchups? Well, I think you have to continue to develop him. You know, um, he got he got hit, you know, picked on really hard early in the North Carolina game. Lewis, Clarence Lewis came in, and I think you have to develop him too. And then Bracey came back and I think played most of the snaps in that game at that field cornerback position, you're going to need all three of those guys, McLeod, Lewis, and Bracey, to play at a high level against playoff teams. That's why I asked uh, Tony Dungy what his impressions of those guys were, and, and he seemed to be pretty impressed. So I think you just got to keep keep developing him, and you also need to keep developing your pass rush because that pass rush is going to make those cornerbacks look good uh, the better it gets. Yeah, I, I think he just needs to get his confidence back in the next two weeks. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be a lot of Clarence Lewis out there. But I, I think Notre Dame needs Bracey to be better, and I believe he can be. He, he's in a bit of a bad spot right now with how things have played out for him. He hasn't played to his best, and uh, confidence is important. And I, I, it, it feels – it's hard for us to always get a good sense of how confident someone is playing other than sort of by judging off the performance. He doesn't look like he's playing very confident right now, um, but maybe maybe he, he still has that inner confidence and it just isn't necessarily showing up on game days. But I think that um, you just got to keep throwing him out there and keep getting him reps and try to get him in a better spot because the, the they don't have enough options beyond him at corner that they – feel comfortable with. Otherwise we probably would have seen them more to this point. And those guys like Cam Hart and Isaiah Rutherford, um, those guys could be playing this week, this weekend against Syracuse because there's probably going to be plenty of opportunities later in the game. So we'll see um, if Notre Dame feels more confident than other guys, but I think you got to keep rolling Tariq Bracey out there and get him back into a better spot than he is right now. 
Next question is from Joe at Joey Salvatore. Are we expecting Notre Dame to ball out against Syracuse and cover the 33-point spread or just play to win and get out with any significant mishaps or injuries? Well, I do not think the spread will come up in Brian Kelly's pregame speech. <laughs> I think the balling out part will. Uh, and not balling out like yelling at people, but balling <laughs> out as he meant playing your hardest. Because the committee is impressed by teams that continue to improve. And I think Notre Dame can do that without risking injury. I think they can play hard with their starters. And they are a team that's been deep enough that the, that second wave of players can play at a high level. So I, th I think it's, it's possibility to do both. But you want to be a team that's improving, that has momentum and so forth. Yeah, they will want to beat them down because it's more fun to beat a team down. And these players deserve to have some fun. They're, they're here to play football. They want to win. They want to win big if they can. And that's what they're going to try to do. So I think that's what will happen. Obviously, our score predictions from the Place Your Bet segment um, indicated that we believe that Notre Dame will cover. But obviously, like you mentioned, it's not going to be a conversation on the sidelines. But I do expect them to be able to cover. Next question is from Ryan Wakefield at Ryan underscore Wakefield. Why are all the conversations about when slash if Clemson beats Notre Dame in the ACC championship and no talk of Notre Dame beating Clemson again? Well, I mean, if you're reading just people from the Notre Dame beat, it's our job to present things from the Notre Dame perspective. And so we all know that if Notre Dame beats Clemson, sweeps Clemson, that they're going to be in the playoff. The question is what happens if they don't beat Clemson, right. we're not predicting that Clemson's going to beat them. We're just trying to show here is the other scenario. Would they still be a playoff team? And right. I think that's one of the big questions. And I think right now the answer would be affirmative that Notre Dame would probably still make the top four. But those are the things that we have to look into. I think from a national perspective, if you read national writers, they are looking at what if Clemson gets a second loss? Would they necessarily be out of the playoffs? So I think you're getting more of that in a national perspective than from our beat, where our job is to look at it from a Notre Dame perspective. Yeah, and, and I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that probably are assuming that Clemson will win again if they play again. Um, they will be favored. Yeah, and – it be, and that's because Clemson is really good, and Clemson has been in the college football playoff the last five years, and it's the most likely possibility of them getting in the playoff is beating Notre Dame in the ACC championship game. So it, it's it's hard to imagine, based on what Clemson has been, Clemson losing to Notre Dame twice in one season. Um, that doesn't mean it can't happen, um, but that's that's why you hear so much of that. And, and I agree with you that one of the big prevailing – beyond that, the prevailing reason is – the whole college football playoff setup and the ranking setup and the, the drama that builds up by week to week is to discuss the hypotheticals that, that may or may not happen throughout the rest of the season. And, and Notre Dame losing to Clemson changes that uh, uh, more than, than if Notre Dame beats Clemson. Next one is from Brent Leonard at Burt2834. When are we going to see Jordan Johnson and Xavier Watts? And then he says, ha, 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 he was, he was kidding. Uh, with with things this season, with the timing of playing the games, why hasn't the NCAA moved the early signing period or early signing day back a few weeks? I'm not sure what that would accomplish. I think if you didn't have the option for kids to sign in February, then maybe you make that. But they don't have to sign on December 16th or December 16th through the 18th. 
they can wait and sign in February. And since there's not visits going on before April of 2021 at the earliest, it's not like you have to entertain the kids and so forth. If you move it back a few weeks, then are you running into the playoffs and the bowl games and that kind of stuff? Um, so I, I'm not sure that there's anything to gain by moving it back. I could see why you'd ask the question. It's just when you kind of think through it with that February safety net, it seems just fine where it is. Yeah, I I, I think I, I went on record early on that I thought they should cancel the early signing period. Um, but when the NCAA extended the dead period beyond the actual signing period, signing day um, in February, um, that sort of made it clear that, that obviously canceling the early signing period wasn't going to give recruits more chances to go visit the schools or anything like that because they're not allowed to, at least with the coaches involved, um, they can still travel to the school and, and sort of walk around and, and get a sense of what the campus is, if that's something they want to do. But the, the, the football program can't be involved, involved in that. Um, I think they should have gotten rid of it. It, to me, it, it complicates the coaching carousel this year even more. I mean, Notre Dame's going to be preparing to play in the ACC championship game while this is going on. And, and say, say Clark Lee was a, a considered a, a finalist, and Vanderbilt wanted to try and hire Clark Lee. Is Clark Lee going to commit to taking that job in time for him to recruit for the early signing period? but also like finish out this season with Notre Dame. It's just, I mean, that, that, that happens every year. There's the timelines a little bit different, but I, I just think it's strange. It, the, the, also the recruits are going to get less attention. I think this, this year, we, we don't yet know like how Notre Dame is going to do it from a media standpoint. Um, but obviously normally there's a, a, there's a press conference where Brian Kelly talks about all the players. We usually um, in the past get all the assistant coaches to talk about all the recruits that they've signed. Um, and I, I'm not sure that that's going to be happening in the middle of a, an ACC championship week. And so I don't think the recruits will get celebrated in the same way. The coaches will have to keep their focus on the season. Um, it, it's just, it's just not going to be the same. I, I, so I guess maybe that's a fitting end to this weird recruiting cycle. Uh, but it's, I, I just think it's a real disservice to everyone involved to have, sort of continue on as if nothing has changed when quite literally everything has changed. Next question is from Scott or, and last question is from Scott Reed at greedy 1967. Have you heard anything about Notre Dame putting in the cool LED lights like Georgia and Alabama has? I think gold or green would be awesome, and the kids love that stuff. The way I'll answer this is pretty predictable. <laughs> I was driving to the grocery store last night and ran into Pete Sampson of The Athletic there. We were the only two in the grocery store at 11.15 at night. Um, <laughs> That's the sports, star, sports writer way right there. <laughs> but, uh, but on my way there – I noted all the beautiful Christmas lights that my neighbors had up. And I wish that I could say that I put Christmas lights up, but I do not own Christmas lights. Um, so I appreciate their Christmas lights. So I guess I would appreciate some kind of lights in Notre Dame stadium, but it's not something I've given great thought to. Yeah. So there were fireworks at the, is the Clemson game? Is that right, Eric? It is true. Um, so obviously they're willing to, to, to sort of experiment with different things and try a way to entertain fans. And I don't know that it, the, the players wouldn't, it would matter that much to the players. I guess you could do something that would be cool, maybe pregame or halftime or postgame. 
or I guess I know like some teams will like celebrate the touchdown with sort of like flashing lights or something like that. But um, I, I'm not against it necessarily. I, I, I don't totally love it. Georgia did some pretty cool things. Um, that was the first time I had sort of experienced something like that. They did a lot of stuff with some red lighting. Um, but also this isn't exactly the year to be spending money on that type of thing. So uh, I think uh, um, Notre Dame may have some explaining to do if it were going out and spending however much money to, on uh, different colored lights for their stadium when they're facing a budget crunch you know, given the COVID pandemic. But it's uh, put that in the back pocket. We'll see if Jack Swarbrick uh, supports that down the road. All right, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We're creeping closer to our goal of 200 ratings. I think you were up to 185 the last I checked on Apple Podcasts. So if you listen to us over there and haven't already, go ahead and drop us a line. Uh, shout out to Melville Girl for the recent review. Um, Tom Noy and Carter Carls will be back on Sunday with a recap of Notre Dame-Syracuse. Until then, stick with NDEinsider.com for all your pregame and postgame coverage needs. <laughs>